My Christmas this year did not turn out at all like I thought it would. On the morning of Thursday, December 21st, I received a phone call from my mom, letting me know that my younger brother, Jonathan, had taken his own life. And I want to start this time off together by saying thank you to you. So many of you have reached out in emails and texts and Facebook messages and cards and in person to offer support and empathy. Many more of you I know have been praying. We came home from Steinbeck to a shoveled driveway, a clean house, folded laundry, flowers on the table, and a meal in our freezer. The world has many criticisms of the church, and some of them are valid. We get it wrong a lot of the time. We are human, and we make mistakes, and we are imperfect. We're flawed reflections of our Creator. But in times like this, in times of loss and pain, I see over and over again that the church comes alive and accomplishes its purpose with a focus and a beauty that I think totally represents what God sees when he talks about his perfect bride. I and my family have felt held by God over this time, and there is no question that you as the church have been his hands and his feet, a part of that holding. So thank you. And be encouraged to continue as others experience loss in our community. Your actions for people who are hurting have eternal significance. You look like Jesus when you treat people the way that you have treated me and my family over the past two weeks. I don't usually know well in advance what I'm going to speak on. My sermon writing process usually begins about two weeks before I am scheduled to speak. I bounce ideas off of people, read scripture and other books, and a seed plants, and then through research and prayer and processing and discussion, and I trust the Holy Spirit, that seed gets watered and fertilized and it grows into something. In my mind first, and then over the last few days before I speak, that idea gets transferred to paper, fully fleshed out and delivered as a sermon. It tends to be about a two-week process. This time, it was a little bit different. For two months already, I have known that in early January, I was scheduled to give a sermon on the concept of worship in brokenness, as shown through the shepherds in the Advent story. We have been preparing and thinking about a series of evening sessions as a leadership team that we wanted to do together as a church in late January and early February. And this topic bridged the gap between the Advent season that we are just coming out of and this series that we are about to go into called Hurt, Hope, and Healing. You have inserts in your bulletin, and I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. I could never have imagined how these last few weeks would have prepared me to do this. What could have been a fairly impersonal thing, reading through books about other people's experiences, has suddenly become deeply and sharply personal. And I wrestled for a long time with how to structure my sermon this morning. In the swirl of the last two weeks, with where I am in life right now, it's difficult to boil my thinking down to three clean points. And so today is going to be a little bit more of a wandering, 
a wandering through scripture, through my own processing, and I hope that you will be willing to wander with me. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit is active in this, and that as I wrestle and as I become vulnerable with you about this topic of brokenness, that we as a church who have experienced much loss over the last year or two will be able to properly grieve together. I want to be clear that I in no way want to elevate or hold up my own experience as something more important or more real or more deep than anything that you have gone through or are going through. Instead, I hope that opening up the journey that I'm currently on can help to open an honest and real discussion about loss and hurt and grief, and just as importantly, a discussion about hope and healing and God's work in our brokenness, and also the church's role in grief. But I want to start by talking about the shepherds. I'm going to read from Luke 2, verses 8 to 20. These are familiar verses to you, but listen along as I read. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We often speak about the idea of an upside-down kingdom, that we live in an upside-down kingdom, the idea that God's world isn't the same as our society, it doesn't have the same priorities, doesn't care about the same things, it sets stuff up in a totally different hierarchy. And here, right from the first words of the Christmas story, we see everything being thrown upside-down. The story is so deeply familiar to us that we might lose the twistiness of it. Every step of it subverts the expectations of what a God coming down to earth would look like. God is coming to earth, the creator of everything. Surely he will arrive in glory and splendor. No. He's going to be born as a baby. Weak, vulnerable, unable to even communicate for his first years on earth. All right? Strange, but born to royalty, right? Born to a queen or a prophetess or someone of stature. No, he will be born to a teenager, a young virgin woman who won't even be married when God is conceived inside of her. Okay, 
So a young teenager is going to give birth to an infant God. Where is this going to happen? In the temple? In a palace? In Jerusalem, the holy city? No. In Bethlehem. In a cave. Surrounded by farm animals. But surely angels will appear glorifying God and proclaiming his arrival on earth. Yes. Angels will show up. Ah. Finally, something makes sense to me. Obviously, they will go to the priests and the prophets or the Jewish leaders and pave the way for Jesus to become king and ruler over Israel. No. They're going to show up to a few shepherds on night shift. And here we come to our passage in Luke 2. Why shepherds? God has been planning this grand reveal for thousands of years, and the first person he announces the good news to is shepherds, not priests, not prophets, not kings or queens, but shepherds. To fully understand the ridiculousness of this, it's important to get how shepherds were perceived in Jesus' time. Shepherds had no social status to speak of. In fact, they were considered to be lowlifes and untrustworthy. Writings from around Jesus' time show that their testimony was considered inadmissible in court. They were outsiders. They were unclean. They were working with animals. They were out of touch with society, spending weeks and weeks on their own with the sheep, following the flock as it grazed. They were poor and on the lowest rung of the social ladder. According to all of Israel's standards, they were incomplete, broken, impure, and unworthy. And the angels tell these shepherds to go and meet God in human flesh. And what do the shepherds do? Sometimes what a verse doesn't say is just as important as what it does say. And once again here we see a total reversal of what we might expect. Think of your reaction. If you were working with sheep, you were working in a, in a barn, and you were told that, I don't know, the, the queen or... Whoever in your mind carries a sense of importance or, or dignity or stature or royalty or authority was, was coming over for supper. For me, if I have to think of someone who inspires that mixture of awe and respect, it's got to be Peter Mansbridge. <laughs> Imagine if you were told that Peter Mansbridge was going to show up at your house for tea. I would at least want to run in and take a shower, hop over to the old farmhouse cafe to pick up some cinnamon buns, try to pass them off as my own. (laughs) There would be tremendous pressure to impress, to clean up, to take out my fancy cutlery and to wear nice clothes and to be presentable. I'd be thrown for a total loop. My stress levels would be off the charts. Now take that level of tension and add to it All the shame in the Jewish culture of being unclean, of being low status and unimportant and considered untrustworthy, and then also understand that it's not just Peter Mansbridge that you're meeting. You're meeting God himself. The shepherds didn't seem to worry about any of that. The passage says nothing about them going to clean up about them going to jump in a stream to wash off, or changing clothes, or running over to the temple for some sort of purification ritual, or even preparing gifts. They just ran towards God. The passage says that they hurried off 
and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they found them, what happened? Were they elevated beyond their poor social status? Were they made clean? Were their problems solved? Were they given wealth? Were their wishes granted? No. They entered as shepherds. And they left as shepherds. They entered smelling like sheep. And they left smelling like sheep. And maybe a few other barnyard animals. By society standards, they were still unclean. They were still untrustworthy. They were still poor. And they were still out of touch. But they had met Jesus. They knew Jesus. And in their brokenness and in their imperfection, they left glorifying and praising God for what they had seen and heard. Not fixed. Not rich. Still shepherds. But shepherds who had seen the king. Who understood the kingdom. There is a tendency today to brush brokenness under the rug. To grieve silently, quietly, privately. To hide the vulnerable parts of us. We are scared of grief as a society. We're unsure of how to deal with it. There is a growing trend of moving away from funerals. The most powerful ceremony of communal grief, one of the few places where it's appropriate to openly grieve, is beginning to disappear. What does that say about us? About our culture? Why do we sometimes feel like we need to walk that journey alone, privately, outside of community? The the human authors of the Bible model this grief beautifully for us. They understood how to grieve. They cry out to God in frustration, in confusion, in pain and in loss, while also holding tightly on to his faithfulness. They hold both of these things at the same time. The promise of restoration along with the reality of pain and allow them to exist together beautifully. There is no hesitation to approach God in trembling. In Habakkuk, the prophet writes, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. My brother struggled with depression. And he kept it to himself. He very intentionally didn't want to burden others with his grief. With his brokenness. With his pain. And so he retreated. And it ate him up inside. Until there was nothing left. Thursday is the day I got the call, but I believe Yonatan had been dying a slow death for years before then, choosing to hide the pain and brokenness, to deal with it privately on his own. In the context of my last few weeks, what I see when I read the story of the shepherds is a God who radically invites brokenness into the light, 
who says, I'm not a genie. I will not magically take away your painful circumstances. I will not wave away your problems. But I will grieve with you. I will come down to be beside you. I will become human to understand you. I will accept you where you are at. The story of the shepherd shows a God who is not scared of imperfection or loss or pain, but says, come and find me in the midst of it. There is a falsehood, a heresy that is sometimes preached as truth. The idea that when we follow God, when we choose to live our lives for Jesus, he will immediately make us whole. Our imperfection and our brokenness will be washed away and we will be made complete in Jesus. The truth is that we will be made complete. Thank you, Jesus. That day is coming. But it is not today. It is not here on earth. That completeness comes in heaven, in eternity. On earth, God provides comfort, guidance, peace, and joy. But it is all in the midst of our brokenness of our fallenness. Our world is imperfect. It is a distortion of God's original creation. There is a big question that gets debated back and forth about the sovereignty of God versus man's free will. The debate's been going on for thousands of years, and I'm certainly not going to solve the issue today. But I do recognize that the world is imperfect. And that even as we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth, for his will to be done here as it is in heaven, the answer to that prayer is and will continue to be incomplete. It is not here on earth as it is in heaven. It isn't. The Bible says that it is God's will that no man should perish. In Second Peter 3 verse 9 it says that. And yet certainly people are still perishing. So it is clear to me that God's will is not being done perfectly here on earth as it is in heaven. I want to be very careful about placing assumptions on God, trying to pretend like I can fully understand his ways. But I have difficulty believing that Jonathan's death, that the brokenness that led up to it, was all part of God's master plan. I don't think that God is in heaven looking down at the last two weeks in my family's life saying, this is good. This is exactly how I set things up to go. Everything is proceeding according to plan. I think God weeps with us in the brokenness of how far away the world is from his original plan, from his original design. And I, in my brokenness, in my pain, am invited to bring that to God in worship. A few months ago, I watched a preacher talk about the concept of worship, what it means to worship an eternal God, what worship accomplishes, what God desires in our worship. It was a pretty dense session, but there was one point that immediately jumped out to me and has been stuck in my brain like like a popcorn kernel in my teeth. He said, as Christians, we will be worshiping for eternity. Our lives are so much bigger than this time here on earth. When we move on from this life, we will be in heaven with Jesus in this ultimate, intimate time of worship throughout the ages in perfect sync with our Creator. I was tracking with him and I figured I knew where he was going with this. I figured his ending point was basically, so if we can keep this big picture in mind, our troubles here on earth don't seem so big. We just need to keep an eye on eternity. 
I'd heard this message before. But what he said took me totally by surprise. It wasn't an appeal to minimize our grief in the concept of the big, in the context of the big picture. He said this, and I'm paraphrasing. We will have eternity to worship God in heaven. But in this short time here on earth, in this blink of an eye compared to eternity, we can worship God in a way that we will never have an opportunity to do again. Not once in the millions of years in heaven, here on earth, we can worship God in brokenness and in disappointment. When things go wrong in our lives, when we experience loss or pain or doubt, we can say, even here in the midst of this, I will give glory to God. We have a short but important chance to give God the gift of worship in the middle of a broken life that we will never be able to do again. What a powerful truth. What an incredible focus shift. Loss stings no less, becomes no less real, but suddenly transforms into an opportunity to give glory to God. Becomes an opportunity to stand up in the face of death and say, where is your victory? I serve a God who is bigger than fear or doubt or death, whose sacrifice has taken away death's power, whose love has taken hopelessness and infused it with hope, with joy. Something about this captured my imagination back in October when I first heard it. Since then, I have spent hours thinking about that concept, praying to God that I will be able to find strength to worship him in moments of loss, not understanding what was just around the corner. God knew it was coming, though. And I praise him for the way that he allowed me to prepare for something I could not have anticipated. 10.41 a.m. on December 21st, I received a phone call that exploded my world. The first words out of my mouth, and words that rested deeply in my heart as well, after hanging up the phone, were, God, you are good. In the midst of this, you are good and worthy of praise. Saying those words, believing those truths, didn't stop the world from spinning around me. Didn't remove the deepness of my pain in that moment. But it invited a God who understands that pain fully to come and cry with me. And it recognized his lordship without pretending that everything is okay. In that moment... I think I was able to be like a shepherd. Broken, incomplete, shattered in fact. But choosing to run to Jesus just as I am. The physical reality of my situation is unchanged. There is still a Yonatan-sized hole in my family and I'm still hurting. I'm going to hurt for a long time yet. God hasn't taken that away from me. And I actually don't think I'd want him to. My trust in God, my saying that God is good in the midst of this doesn't stop me from hurting, but it means I don't have to be scared of that hurt. I don't have to run away from it. I don't have to hide it. Like Habakkuk, I can also, I can hurt while also trusting in a God who is bigger than that hurt, who has conquered death. I can hurt in the context of a church community that is holding and supporting me and my family. 
What God has done for me, what God has done for all of us who wrestle with loss, is given us a promise that loss is not all there is. Isaiah 41, a passage I preached on just a few months ago, speaks of the faithfulness of God so powerfully. It says, I said, this is God speaking, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We hurt. We all hurt. But we are held by God. Hallelujah. The worship committee and leadership team have been planning a series of sessions for several months already that deal with the idea of loss and pain. There has been significant loss in our church in all sorts of contexts over the past few years. And hurting is bigger than just death. All of us have faced loss in different ways, whether through broken relationships, broken dreams, broken health. And we want to take these evenings as a church family to recognize the hurt that people in our community have experienced through the sharing of testimonies. But more than just the hurt, we want to recognize the hope that we have in a God who saves and restores and the healing that has taken place while also talking about what is the church's role when people are hurting. You have inserts in your bulletins with more information on the sessions. And I also want to say that if anybody is interested in sharing a testimony around this idea of hurt, hope, and healing, please contact one of the pastors, Darren, Mike, or myself. I believe that the Holy Spirit is working in our church, preparing us to walk this journey together. I am so blessed to have you as a support, and I'm excited to walk through these sessions with you as we recognize a God who holds us in the midst of our brokenness. Praise Jesus. God is good. Amen.